0: Harry's been preaching uh, the last few weeks on the parable of the seed and the soils, and it's been beneficial for all of us, and I'm sure has prompted many of us to actually examine our lives. Where are we? Are we those that are like the good soil, that receive the seed and begin to bear fruit and allow it to take root in our life? And so I know many of you are praying and thinking about your genuine uh, devotion to Christ And when we think about the ministry of the gospel itself, that very seed that we're called to sow, this morning I want to speak to, what does the Bible say is the real aim of the gospel? And it's going to tie into the song that we just sang this morning. You know, I just speak to you this morning as a fellow brother in Christ. I'm not here to impress you with exegetical skills or a fine sermon. What I want to do is speak to you devotionally and what we can derive from the Scripture as to what it is that God ultimately intends for us through the work and ministry of the gospel. I've entitled this, Delighting in God, Our Chief Aim in Life. As I get older, and those of you who, like Mark Curry, can remember those old examples of uh, technology and things like that uh, that have now come to fruition... The older you get in the Christian life, what you begin to understand is life holds both trials and hardships and suffering and remarkable joys and blessings. And a lot of times, these two things actually come at the very same time. And you grow to learn that life itself is not just seeking the perfect life or the most comfortable life or trying to get everything in your life so fixed that you can take that deep breath that we all long for, that our souls long for. That deep breath, the rest of our souls is what we await ultimately. This is the rest that the author of Hebrews speaks to. It's that eternal rest in the presence of God. And the reason I I reference this is that sometimes we begin to place demands on ourselves and even our demands on God that the reason that he saved us and exists is somehow fix our lives in this present world or somehow to Uh, answer our prayers in such a way that all of our needs are met, and we can take that collective breath. Now, we can know the peace of God in the midst of hardship and trials. That's a promise that he makes to us that comes through his abiding presence, which is a wonderful truth. What I'm speaking of is a sinful tendency to begin to see God only as the dispenser of those things that fix my world and miss out on God himself and the intended relationship that he wants to have for us, And the reason I want to focus on this is I believe the secret of knowing joy in the Christian life is not your circumstances. It's not just accumulating enough wins in the Christian life or successes in ministry or life or fixing your kids or fixing your family or fixing your house or whatever else. Um, that is a constant reminder that we live facing the reality of fallenness and that somehow God is the one that we just go to to fix our world. He ultimately has fixed everything, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be this ultimate rest that is ours. But we can know a joy in the midst of suffering and hardship and trials, but we can also at the same time recognize his hand of work among us and celebrate those wonderful provisions and blessings and and acknowledge that. And so I know many of you are nodding because you know as you live life that it is true the Christian life that it's Both often coming at the same times, the highs and lows, the challenges with the joys. And if you're a person who is going to find your joy or your happiness in whether you're always at a high or being pulled out of a low, you're you're missing out on the ultimate reality of who God is and what he intends for us in this life and in the future life. Does that make sense? So I want to kind of elevate you. I want to encourage you from Scripture this morning to say, you know no matter what your present circumstances are, I can assure you, if everything's going great, that's going to change, okay? Just know that's going to happen. If everything's really, you know, at rock bottom, that's going to change, okay? And what you don't want to do is just be on a constant roller coaster, and you certainly don't want to begin to interpret or define God's love for you just based on those highs and lows, His love for us is something that is unchanging. It is unconditional. It's eternal. And so we just sang about it. But what does that look like in translating to everyday life? And so I just want to help you and encourage you to that end. One of the texts of Scripture that has really captured my thought in a, frankly, if I were honest, just a convicting way, is what the psalmist writes in Psalm 27. Verse 4, he says, One thing I have asked from the Lord. That one thing I shall seek. What is that? This is the main thing for David. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Wow, when I read that and slowed down enough to meditate on it, I had to ask myself, is this true of me? Can I claim that my greatest or my chief desire is God himself. To live and abide in his presence, now and certainly for eternity. It's not just looking to God to provide what I request from him. It's not looking just for those daily provisions, or as I said, just successes in ministry. It's not the ever- Ending needs that I or those I love who face and looking to the Lord just to meet those needs and provide for them. But could I truly say that God Himself is what I delight in? Is this the one thing I would ask from the Lord? Is this the one thing that I would seek with my whole heart? That I could dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And notice it's not just the safety of being in His presence, but to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate on him in his temple. This is not an unfamiliar idea to David. He writes in Psalm 37 verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So if David is calling the nation to delight in the Lord, he's speaking for firsthand experience because we just read, earlier that he said this is my one aim this is my chief aim to delight in the lord but he didn't want it to just be true of him he wanted to be true of those that he led those that he shepherded he wanted them to see in his life and learn from him that you can delight in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart and what that means is not just everything you ask or think is a need he's going to give you it means he's actually going to give you the desires of your heart he's going to shape your heart to be satisfied in him, to long for him. And then all the things that you do desire in life are for his glory and for his good and for his purpose. And so there's this effect of delighting in the Lord that is actually going to produce in us a heart that finds our greatest joy in him. He repeatedly claimed to have found the sweetest joy and pleasure in the presence of God. He wrote earlier in Psalm 16, verse 11, You will make known to me the way of life in your presence... Do you know what it says? It's fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. text I'm sure familiar to us is Psalm 63, verses 1 through 3. It says, God, you are my God. I shall be watching for you. For my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and exhausted land where there is no water, What's the picture that he's painting? It's it's like being in the middle of a desert. So focused on the only thing, the greatest need that you have and the only thing that's going to satisfy it. For that person crawling across the desert sands is what? It's a drink of water. Right? Everything else falls away. There is nothing else that I need other than this. And that's what he's saying. And he continues to say, as a soul thirsts for you and my flesh yearns for you, so have I seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory. Where does he find the relief? Where does he find what his soul longs for? It's in the presence of God himself. Or in Psalm 65, verse 4, he says, Blessed is the one you choose and allowed to approach you. He will dwell in your courtyards, and we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. And lastly, from his pen, we see in Psalm 84, verse 1 and 2, how lovely are your dwelling places, Lord of armies. My soul longed and even yearned for the courtyards of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And so I read those texts and I have to ask myself the question, do I really love God? Yes, I know he loves me, Maybe I don't fully comprehend that, and I can aspire to grow to understand that, but is that producing in me a love for him? And as I've been reflecting on these texts of Scripture, I found myself studying uh, the book of John, particularly the gospel, chapter 14 through 17. And uh, you know, I like to recommend books, so I'll do it again today, uh, a book that's been helpful to me is a series of sermons by Sinclair Ferguson entitled Lessons from the Upper Room, The Heart of the Savior. And it's his expository approach to these chapters. And it's just, again, a great devotional tool for you as you read and study uh, John 14, John 13, actually, through 17. Lessons from the Upper Room by Sinclair Ferguson. And what Ferguson does so well, and I would encourage you to do the same, is take some time and read John 13 through 17. Read it as a whole. Listen for the theme in that. I'm going to do my best to try to uh, survey that this morning and give you a, a sense of what the emphasis is in those passages. But as you read those chapters, you're going to begin to hear the heart of our Lord himself. And you're going to find it's very complementary to what we just read with regard to the psalmist. If you look at these chapters, you see in John 13 through 17, these are the very final hours before Christ goes to the cross. These are critical moments in his life and ministry. He's spending time with his disciples in the upper room. And as you know, when somebody says goodbye that you're not going to see for a long time, the last words that they share with you often are the most important words, the thing that is most central to their heart and their thinking that they want to leave with you, and that's true in these chapters. Christ has gathered his disciples in the upper room, and he wants to speak to them in a way that's going to benefit them, not just in the moment, but for the future that he knows is coming and awaits them. Chapter 14, uh, as he has explained to them that he is going to be betrayed and he's going to be uh, taken from them, their immediate response is a natural response, is one to be expected. They've just spent three and a half years with Jesus Christ, living every day with him, walking with him, observing his ministry, and while they still fell short of fully comprehending all of who he is and what he was going to do, They came to love and know Christ, and Christ is now saying to them, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you. And John chapter 14 begins with that testimony to them, and he immediately speaks to the condition of the thought that they have of being separated from Christ. What does he say in verse 1? He says, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are made dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What's Christ saying to them? Look, my separation from you is just a temporary separation. You don't need to be anxious about me leaving you because it doesn't define the kind of love and commitment I have to you as my disciples. And he assures them just right on the heels of saying, I'm going to be taken from you. Don't worry, I'm going with the purpose. I'm making a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and get you. So what is Christ comforting them with? It's the assurance that this relationship is not going to be severed. It's not going to be broken. It's a relationship that's going to last for all eternity. That's the word of comfort that Christ gives to his disciples. He goes on in chapter 14 and addresses this and says that he's going to not forsake them. And he uses the imagery of uh, not abandoning them as orphans. And so he purposefully uses familial language, the most intimate of relationships, a father-child relationship. He said, I, God, the Son of God, we, God, Father, Son, Spirit, are never going to abandon you. You're not at risk. You will never be left as an orphan. As a matter of fact, I have some good news for you. In my physical absence, I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. So you will not be alone. I will remain abiding in a way that is present with you, God with you. What a comfort that must have been to the disciples, where they fully grasped and understood what the work of the Holy Spirit was going to be in their life and ministry. They would come to appreciate that. They would come to know his presence and his strengthening power in the face of suffering and martyrdom. They would know the power of God in them and with them in the days to come. And so Christ is trying to set hope in their heart and encourage them that the relationship that they were saved for, brought into for eternity, was not at risk. Now he goes on in chapter 15 and expands on this, and he promises that those who are truly saved can know what it is to abide in Christ. Meaning that they can experience intimate fellowship with Christ through the Holy Spirit. And out of that relationship, they can bear fruit. That's the imagery, isn't it? Of the vine and the branch. Right? And he's saying that the true vine, yeah. you know, or the true branch is attached to the true vine. And life comes from the vine, and that is Christ himself. And so this picture that he begins to paint for them, if you look at John chapter 15, where he explains all this, then he says in verse 9, "'Just as the Father has loved me, "'I have also loved you. "'Abide in my love. "'If you keep my commandments, "'you will abide in my love, "'just as I have kept my Father's commandments "'and abide in his love. "'These things I have spoken to you "'so that my joy may be in you, "'and that your joy may be full.'" Notice that what you begin to see is Christ attaches the idea of the fullness or the full extent of real joy is found where? It's in relationship with him. It's a relationship that is not at risk for those who truly know him. It's a relationship that is eternal. And so there's something available to us as believers in relationship with Christ that should be the source of our joy. It's not our circumstances, okay? It's in the person of God. This is Christ's encouragement to them. Well, he goes on in chapter 16, and he reminds them. He says in verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? They're afraid he's going to leave. They're sad about that. They're concerned about being separated from him and losing his fellowship. And he says in verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What an amazing promise. Where... Christ, who was Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Notice what he's now saying. This is even better. It's not going to just be God with you. It's going to be God in you. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And by Christ's own words, he's saying, this is even better than my physical presence with you. And so the believer who has the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit has what Christ is saying, the greatest advantage, to know and have fellowship with God himself. Now Christ knows that what awaits them is hardship, persecution, and suffering. He knows the work that they're going to accomplish in the years ahead to build his church and advance the Great Commission. It will be work that's going to be done in the face of great hostility and suffering. And when I consider that, I think about the words of the author of Hebrews who explains that Christ is not just in heaven preparing a place for us, but he's there sitting at the right hand of the Father and actually interceding on our behalf. And the language that's used there is he's interceding motivated from what? sympathy, knowing exactly what it's like to endure hardship and suffering, even to the point of persecution and death. And so not only do we have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, we have Jesus Christ in the very presence of God, interceding on our behalf, carrying our burdens, our concerns, our needs, so that we might accomplish what it is that God has for us to do in this life. What a loving... Ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That carries on whether you recognize it or not. But it is occurring today. Why? Because he loves us and he will not forsake us. And so in these chapters leading up to John 17, we see that what Christ is emphasizing through all of this is this wonderful opportunity to find the fullness of joy in abiding relationship with him. And we have every resource available to us. The residence of the Holy Spirit, certainly we have the testimony of the revelation of God's word. We have the comfort and care of fellow believers who remind us of these truths in the midst of life's circumstances. And we have the assurance of what awaits us no matter if we live a long life or short life. If we die natural deaths in our bed, take our last breath in peace, or whether we face The reality of giving our life for Christ. This is assured for us. And so with that in mind, by way of introduction, I want us to look particularly at John 17. This text is referred to as the high priestly prayer speaking about Christ's intercession and prayer before the Father on our behalf. And there's so much here, and I'm just going to give you a survey of it and try to identify four reasons why delighting in God must be our chief aim as well. The first reason or observation is this, delighting in God is the chief aim of eternal life. John 17 verses 1 through 3, we can read that. We read, Jesus spoke these things and raising his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Just as you gave him authority over all mankind, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now listen, verse 3, underline it, circle it, whatever you need to do. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is Christ's definition of eternal life. This is what, he says is going to, to be affected by his work on the cross. He's saying, on the cross, I want you to glorify me that I might glorify you. And the word glorify, what the essence of it really is, is the full display of the character and heart of God. What's going to transpire on the cross is the greatest demonstration of the character and love of God. The fullness of his mercy and compassion on behalf of those who do not deserve it. And so Christ is going to glorify the Father on the cross. But he wants others to know and understand what it is that he's seeking to accomplish in that work and ministry on the cross. Yes, it's eternal life. And he defines it as this, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Michael Reeves, in speaking on this, topics, makes this observation. He says, the treasure and glory of heaven is God himself. Our preoccupation and glory will not be God's blessings in themselves, but the blessed God himself. Since we are sure in the eternal embrace of Jesus Christ, we are people of hope. And in our mission today, we invite the sinful, broken, and empty, not to the hope of heaven as an ethereal afterlife, but to the beauty, fullness, and glory of the lamb who was slain For us. As I thought about that, you know, I consider so often we do consider what we've been saved from as the great gift of eternal life, the real treasure of the gospel. And after coming to faith, we often focus on the work God has called us to do. But what Christ is saying in reality is that eternal life is relationship with God, the Father, the Son, and through the Spirit. Do you understand the distinction? What have you been saved for? Is it just escape from punishment, just from the difficulty of of living in a fallen world? Is it just the immense glories of heaven? Well, Reeves helps us be mindful of what Christ is actually saying here as well. Those things are amazing, and we look forward to them, but they're not ultimate. It's the person of God himself. We know this if you look further down in the chapter, John 17, verses 20 through 26. I just want to read this for you. He says, I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you've given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them just as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and I will make it known so that The love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Do you hear the purpose statements of the gospel? Every time we read so that, it's the reason, it's the rationale. And repeated in these verses, the so that statement is that we may be one with Jesus as Jesus is one with the Father and they can be one with us. This is his definition of eternal life. Relationship with God himself. Just as we are one, and they also may be in us, and the love which we enjoy together may also be enjoyed by them. Don't miss out on the emphasis here. It's a mutual joy. It's a mutual fellowship. It's a mutual delight in one another. So often we consider ourselves to be those vile sinners, and it's certainly true, that are undeserving of God's grace and salvation. But what the Scriptures tell us that God's aim in rescuing and redeeming us is to enjoy us, to delight in us. Yes, he's going to deal with our sin problem. And he's going to sanctify us so that we will be like his son Jesus Christ one day. He solved that problem. And what eternal life for us is bringing us into the ability to enjoy and be enjoyed by God himself. All right, the second observation we can make as we look at John 17 is that delighting in God should also be the chief aim of our present life, not just our future life, eternal life, but our present life. If you go back to verse 13, John writes, or quoting Christ in his prayer, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them away from the evil one. So Christ's explanation of the fullness of joy is not just future-oriented. Because he's saying here in verse 13, these very things that I'm instructing them in the world is so that they may know joy in themselves. And he goes on in verse 15, he says, and I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. What Christ is saying here is that we can know joy now in God. It's not just future, but it is also present. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and that they would attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed in overflowing with gratitude. Verse 9, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over every ruler and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision performed without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings. He's speaking to the Colossians about a present reality. Yes, future, but present as well. And this is what we need to consider. Sometimes we think in terms of hope is only a future-oriented reality. Certainly, when we think about presence, being in the presence of God, unhindered by sin, there's no doubt. We should have great hope, but that hope should be true today. I'm not left alone. I have not been abandoned as an orphan. I'm not left to just find and stumble my way through this life, hoping that I live a good enough life that somehow God's going to be pleased with me. He's given us himself. He's given us his word. He's given us his people so that we might Know the fullness of joy now, not in our circumstances, but in our relationship with him. Another resource I would encourage you to look at would be a collection of sermons by a Puritan named Alexander Gross. He pastored in the city of Devon, England in the 1640s. This collection of sermons uh, that he authored is entitled, The Happiness of Enjoying and Making True and Speedy Use of Christ. The happiness of enjoying and making true and speedy use of Christ. And it's actually a treatment of the text I just read, Colossians chapter 2, where he wants to unpack what does Paul mean about the fullness of Christ and our fellowship with him. So listen, this is a little bit of a longer quote, but just follow the thought. This is what Gross writes. He says, In this, behold, those who are filled with the chiefest and choicest of fullness. This is the excellency of Christ." That he is filled with all the fullness of the Godhead. And this is the excellency of the soul to be filled with the Godhead. And this is the excellency of the soul to be filled with the fullness of the Spirit. Of all fullness, heavenly fullness is the choicest. Christ of all creatures comes nearest to God, and his fullness is the fullness of the divine essence. Among men that are most near and most dear to God, their fullness is a fullness of heavenly gifts and graces. He continues. He says, It is a sweet and comfortable and a satisfactory and contenting fullness, a feast of marrow and fat things, and of well-refined wine, and a river that fills and makes glad the soul. Oh, then, above all other fullness, highly prized, diligently seek and earnestly hunger after the fullness of God. Care not for the fullness of gold, the fullness of lands, the fullness of honor, or for the fullness of carnal satisfaction, but... For the fullness of God. This will make you strong against temptations, make you patient in the afflictions, joyful in sufferings, holy in thought, gracious in speech, fruitful in action, humble in prosperity, confident in adversity, fervent in prayer, profitable in hearing, godly in conversation, and graciously assured of future fullness of an eternity of all bliss and happiness. Now, that's a long list of things that are ours in Christ. But what he's speaking to is, yes, there's a future reality, but there's a present reality as well. When your life is caught up in a a love and delight in God himself, and you understand what you were saved for and how to live in light of that great truth, then all these circumstances that he mentioned, either trials and sufferings or prosperity and blessing. Your joy is assured in something that's not temporal. It's not something that can be taken away. And that's my encouragement to you this morning. Do you find yourself kind of just riding the waves, highs and lows, looking towards other people or other things to somehow fix or satisfy your life? I assure you, even with the best of faithful, godly people in your life, you'll be met with disappointment. You must attach your hope in something other than your circumstances and and fellow man. And when you do that, there's a freedom that comes to love and minister to serve because it's not looking for some reciprocity or some way to improve your circumstances. The one who will never change the one who will never disappoint, the one who will never fail, is yours, secure. And to live in light of that will enable you to move through life, no matter the circumstances, with a fullness of joy. This is what Paul says, and I think it's very practical for us, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. <laughs> it's there, he says, I can be content or satisfied in all circumstances. Wow. How many times have you read that or heard a sermon on that and thought, that is not true of me? Right? Well, let's read what Paul writes, verse 11 of chapter 4. Not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What does he say? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's Paul saying to us? Look, there is one thing. There is one ultimate reality that I'm anchored in. I am his and he is mine. And nothing, even prosperity is going to come close to the joy that comes in knowing Christ. If you set your eyes there, not only will it be fleeting, it will not satisfy And even when you don't have what you think you need, you have everything that you truly need. Point number three that we can derive from this text is found in verses 17 through 21. Christ continues in this prayer saying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that I may all that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us. What's Christ saying is it's not just that I want them in this life to be secured in their joy in us, but... As they go into the world, I want that to be what motivates them. I want that to be what their confidence in. And so the third point is delighting in God is the chief motive in evangelism and missions. As I've said, it's not primarily what we've been saved from, though this is great and significant grace, but it is also what we've been saved to. Yet another resource I'm going to mention (laughs) is a book that recently came out um, by Daniel Hames and Michael Reeves entitled, God Shines Forth, How the Nature of God Shapes and Drives the Mission of the Church. God Shines Forth, Michael Reeves and Daniel Hames. And the theme of the book throughout scripture that they cite clearly shows that a believer's responsibility is to make God known in the world, but this can't be done without first knowing and enjoying God not done in the way that Christ wants us to. This understanding of delighting in God changes the whole motivation for missions. If Christ came so that we could know God, then our motivation must be the same as his. And the more we are satisfied and delighting in God, the more we will desire for the lost to know him like we know him. If you love him and delight in him, and you see those who don't know him and have any ability to enjoy him now and for eternity in the same way you do, it motivates you to tell them about him. Here's what Reeves and Hames write in their book, just a few comments. God's delight is to fill his people with joy in him now and forever. The glory that we long for and hold out to the world is the very same outshining glory that propels our mission today. The living God is so glorious and kind, he cannot be known without being adored. Those who truly know him will love him. Unless we honestly find God to be beautiful and enjoyable, we'll have nothing worth saying to the people around us. Until we see him aright, we'll have no genuine desire to fill the world with the knowledge of our God. His mission is to fill the earth with his own divine joy and beauty. Seeing this glorious God will change everything for us. Missions is the natural overflow and expression of the enjoyment you have of him, so that like him, you gladly go out and fill the world with the word of his goodness. He continues, Christians who don't enjoy God can't and won't wholeheartedly commend him to others. If we fear that God's love for us is reluctant or that his approval rests on our performance, we won't feel any real affection for him. Our service will be grudging and the world will likely see through us. How can we leave our friends, families, and colleagues in ignorance of the Lord whose purpose for all things is so good? Knowing his love that has reached out to us, what else can we do but reach out with the same love today? Now, I'm speaking to you as a guy who's taught missions for 30 years. I spent the majority of my life, a big focus of, of my wife and, and our ministry has been engagement and missions. But I have to say to you, this truth that we're talking about today hasn't fully or always characterized me. I've been focused on the strategy of missions. I've been focused on people being saved from eternal punishment away from God. I've been focused on a lot of things. But I've been convicted, do I delight in God? And is that the ultimate motivation for all that I do in life and ministry? Speaking of... This emphasis, Reeves in the book, makes reference to John Calvin. John Calvin started what was called the Geneva Academy to train pastors. And 75% of the pastors he trained there in Geneva, Switzerland, were those who had faced persecution under the Catholic rule of France. And their intention was to come and be trained to teach the word of God that they might return. And so Calvin knew that a majority of his students were facing going back into the mission field and facing great hostility and, and maybe even death. And Reeves makes this observation about Calvin. He says, he saw that those people who knew God most deeply and satisfyingly would be the best at winning hearts into the kingdom. And those most thrilled at the prospect of taking the gospel out into the world were, not, were those most captured by the beauty and goodness of the God of the gospel. Well, to punctuate this, and I think for me, this is maybe one of the biggest lessons that I've learned, is the fourth point. Delighting in God was the chief agony of the cross. Delighting in God was the chief agony of the cross. What happens in the text of Scripture? Well, if we continue reading following this time of prayer, we find Christ in the garden. Now we begin to see the actual passion begin to take place where he is moving towards the cross. It says in verse 1, when Jesus has spoken these words, he went away with his disciples across the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden which he entered with his disciples. And in this context, we are exposed to what Christ continues to pray to the Father. And this narrative is expanded on in Matthew chapter 26. So listen as I read the text. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Verse 39, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying so that you do not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink from it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Luke 22, verse 42 adds to this. As he was praying, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. What we see in this moment after everything he's communicated to the disciples and as he begins to intercede with the Father, he is characterized by a level of agony, spiritual, I want to say emotional, and physical agony that led to him sweating like drops of blood. This is an extreme agony. And so we're left to ask the question, what was it that grieved him so much? What experience on the cross did he anticipate which would cause him to suffer such agony just at the thought of it? Was it that he came to love and was rejected and was going to be ridiculed and despised in a public way? Was that it? Was it that he came to die and now anticipate the physical torture and pain and suffering? I think many of us have assumed that is what led him to this point of agony. But if we read the account of the crucifixion carefully, We would bear witness, yes, to the atrocities he would experience. And so there is every reason to think that these are the things which caused him such dread. But we see something unexpected in his responses to these realities on the cross. Matthew 27 verse 41 tells us, In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He has trusted in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him for he has said, I am the Son of God. And even the rebels who had been crucified with him were also insulting him in the same way. Yet in reading the account of the crucifixion, he did not respond to either of these realities except with resolve and kindness. He says, speaking of the people before him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or he says to the one thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. We don't see Christ characterized by agony in those moments of physical suffering or even facing ridicule and persecution. So what was it that grieved him so much? We'll continue on in Matthew 27, verse 45. This is what we read. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, said, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave him drink. But the rest of them said, let us see Elijah if Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. So, what was the true moment of agony for Christ on the cross? See, what grieved Christ the greatest was being separated from, forsaken by, hindered from remaining in the presence of the Father. This is the reality of the cross that caused Christ the greatest pain. It was to him the greatest loss. And it was in that moment when he declares Father, you've forsaken me. When the Father turned his back on Christ because of the sin that he represented, that's what solicited his groans. That's what crushed his spirit and led to the moment of his death. Consider that it was in that moment for the first time since all eternity past, He who was the Word and had been with God from the beginning, who had enjoyed the perfect, intimate, loving fellowship with the Father, experienced the greatest loss he could possibly experience. Christ knew in the garden that he would taste of something greater than physical pain, greater than emotional rejection, and in taking on the sins of the world and becoming sin for us, his Father, who is holy, could not maintain fellowship with him in that hour. So that we could have fellowship with God, he would set aside and give up the thing that was most dear to him. John MacArthur writes on this text, he says, When Christ was forsaken by the Father, their separation was not one of nature, essence, or substance. Christ did not in any sense or degree cease to exist as God or as a member of the Trinity. He did not cease to be the Son any more than a child who sins severely against his human father ceases to be his child. But Jesus did, for a while, cease to know the intimacy of fellowship with his loving Father. Just as a disobedient child ceases for a while to have intimate, normal, loving fellowship with his human father. By the incarnation itself, there had already been a partial separation because Jesus had been separated from his divine glory and from the face-to-face communication with the father. Refusing to hold on to those divine privileges for his own sake, according to Philippians chapter 2, he prayed to the father in the presence of his disciples. And listen to what he says, going back to John 17. Glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I have had with thee before the world was. And at the cross, his separation from the Father became immeasurably more profound than the humbling incarnation during the 33 years of his earthly life. This was the greatest pain. This was the greatest horror. This was the chief agony of the cross. See, if eternal life is life with God and in God, and the Son himself was willing to experience the severity of separation that we might be brought into fellowship with him, now you begin to understand the treasure that we have, the opportunity to know and to delight in God himself, not just in the future, but in the present. And when we understand that, that becomes the greatest motivation to tell others about what God wants to enjoy with them. The main thing we were made for, and that which was lost in the fall, that which has been recovered by the cross is the restoration of relationship with the living God. And this is the greatest of pleasures that await us as we will dwell in his presence forever and ever. And if this is the case, then we should do everything we can in this life to delight in him as well. And if our chief aim is delighting in God, then how can we not tell those we love about what he offers in eternal life? I want you to bow your heads for a moment. Just as we conclude, I want you to take a moment and talk to the Lord. Consider the scriptures we have heard this morning Express to him your own heart's response. If needed, ask him to stir your heart again to love and delight in him first above all else. If delighting in Christ and tasting of the fullness of joy that should be ours is not true of you, maybe you don't know him. And this is an opportunity to consider again the teaching of the last few weeks to examine your own life and to see if you really have made Christ your Savior and Lord. Or maybe you're a believer who has found that your heart has grown cold or distant. You're preoccupied with people's behaviors and circumstances or realities at work or uh, in our world. And you have been focused on Christ fixing those things when he's fixed the greatest need that you have. It's settled, it's done. And he invites you to rest in to delight in and to worship him. Make this the day that you return to him. And as the psalmist said, making the main thing, the one thing that you desire is to abide in his presence and in the beauty and fullness of who he is. Pray with me. Almighty God, this still is so far beyond our ability to fully comprehend and and to maintain this perspective throughout the turbulent realities of our life, and yet it is the truth from the very lips of Christ himself. And as we meditate on these truths, guide us so that our time of devotions are focused more on you than on duty, that our times of service and ministry are focused less on accomplishments, even the good and noble things that we believe are consistent with your will, but you. And may we find our hope today and our joy in you. And so aid us, again, through the abiding witness of the Holy Spirit to know what it means to abide and to live in newness of life. And yes, Lord, the realities of this world only sharpen our sense of expectation and longing. We do groan but we are assured of what awaits us, the eternal rest. But that rest is not just separation from the hardship of this life and our own sin. The rest is being in you. Keep this in our hearts and in our minds and aid us to make the application throughout our daily lives. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, Lord bless you guys.